This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Last month, protests spread across Israel after their legislature passed a new law that could reshape how the country's judiciary functions. There's been a lot of news shaping the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, from the new law to the protests to recent comments by a Democratic congresswoman that Israel is a racist state and the House resolution reaffirming U.S. support for Israel. So I just want to begin today by noting that this isn't a conversation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is one of the most complicated problems on earth. It's complex, and it's full of questions statesmen have struggled with for more than half a century. It's definitely a difficult conversation worth wrestling with, but it would take far more time than we have to do justice to that issue today. Instead, what I want to focus on is the U.S.-Israel relationship and some of the recent political developments in Israel that have made headlines here and around the world, and whether, as Americans, we should be worried about the health of democracy within one of our strongest democratic allies. So today, I'm excited to be joined by Avi Mayer. Avi is the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, which is the most read English newspaper in Israel and the leading news outlet in the Jewish world. He's also been the international spokesperson for the Jewish Agency for Israel, which is the largest Jewish organization in the world. And he was the managing director of global communications and public affairs at the American Jewish Committee. In 2016, he was named the third most influential person on Jewish Twitter behind Benjamin Netanyahu, who was number two. Avi, big warm welcome to Politicology. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. You and I met in Israel about 18 years ago. It was December of 2005, which was during the aftermath of the disengagement from Gaza and evacuation of the Israeli settlements there, which was a policy advanced by the late Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. And at the time, a lot of people said Sharon had been holding things together with his bare hands. And I still remember the moment we learned the night before we were supposed to meet him, I think, that he had suffered a, a serious stroke. And I felt this distinct mix of shock and sadness and a little bit of worry. And fast forwarding to today, so many things have changed since then. And in many ways, we're living in a different world. But one thing that has remained constant is the importance of the U.S.-Israel relationship. So I'd love to start with a well-set table. I think a lot of our listeners will know that the U.S.-Israel alliance is a strong one but they might not fully understand why it's so important for both partners. So could you just start by laying out the importance of, of that relationship, that alliance, and how you see it having changed over the last couple of decades? Sure. Look, you know, the, the notion of Jewish statehood um, or of a Jewish homeland uh, in, in the Jewish people's ancestral uh, land uh, is one that's really embedded in uh, the American consciousness for the entirety of America's existence. Um, some people may not know that 
when America was considering what its official emblem might be, uh, one of the proposals that would actually be Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, the notion of uh, a Jewish return to their ancestral homeland is one that entertained the imaginations of many of America's founding fathers. Um, you find biblical names in cities across America, places like, like Bethlehem and Zion um, are taken directly from the Bible. Um, and so it's perhaps unsurprising that America, uh, the American government and the American people were amongst the earliest supporters of Zionism, of the Jewish national movement to reestablish a national home in uh, the Jewish people's ancestral homeland uh, known as Israel. And in fact, the United States was uh, the first country to recognize the new state of Israel in 1948, just minutes after its establishment. President Truman uh, granted recognition to the state that, that the name of which it didn't even know. Um, he said the 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 Jewish new Jewish state uh, in Palestine, and it was uh, sort of crossed out, and the word Israel was inserted by pen. Um, but the truth is that the United States held Israel at something of arm's length. Uh, for about the first 20 years uh, of its existence. And it was not the, the situation where it is today, where the United States is uh, um, Israel's primary supplier of arms, for example, or of diplomatic backing. Um, in fact, during that period, um, it really was sort of a bit of a crapshoot, whether um, Israel was going to be pulled into the Western orbit or actually into the Soviet orbit. Um, Stalin uh, and, and the, the Soviets were actually... Um, also entertaining the notion that Israel might somehow become uh, a Soviet satellite state. You may know that in Israel's earliest origins, it was heavily socialist, um, a country that believed uh, very much in the notion of equality and um, sort of scorned the idea of capitalism. But it quickly became clear that Israel was, in fact, going to be a Western-style democracy with a capitalist economy. Um, and over years, uh, not only did the Soviets lose interest, but they in fact started arming uh, Israel's neighbors uh, in, in their wars against Israel. Uh, but it wasn't until 1967 when the United States saw Israel's spectacular victory in the Six-Day War that it came to understand that Israel might actually be a valuable ally in the region. Um, it was after the 73 War, actually really during the 73 War of Yom Kippur, exactly 50 years ago uh, during this period, that uh, the United States started arming Israel much more heavily and started providing it with the backing that we see enduring till the present day. Um, and, and uh, you know, the truth is that if you look at where we're at uh, in terms of the relationship, um, it still remains very, very strong. Um, it's one of the few issues that commands a bipartisan consensus uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate um, overwhelmingly, Americans, when polled, say that they support Israel, they support the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, and that, I think, is, is a sign of, of healthiness and a sign of uh, the robustness of that relationship. Um, you know, there tend to be various nuances that will arise between different administrations that may take issue with this or that Israeli government or the policies advanced by this or that Israeli government. Um, but for the most part, what you see is a strong and robust relationship um, that really includes a variety of fields from cooperation on defense and intelligence uh, to people-to-people -people exchanges, cultural exchanges, tremendous uh, uh, trade uh, balance. And I think that that's something that really does get to um, the, the durability of that relationship and how it really is so embedded in 
the consciousness of both peoples at this point. Um, I wrote a column not long ago after a visit um, to Washington in which I sort of reflected on the conversations that I had there. And I spoke to uh, both Democratic and, and Republican leadership uh, in the House. Um, and I spoke to a variety of members of Congress and, and policymakers and so on. Um, and, you know, it, it was it came at a moment where, you know, there's a lot of conversation, as you said earlier, about certain uh, policies being advanced, certain legislation being advanced by the current Israeli government um, that is viewed uh, as undermining, viewed by some, uh, as undermining Israel's democratic nature. Um, and so I kind of expected to hear concern, um, apprehension, uh, you know, some, some sense of worry on the part of the people I was speaking to, and I really didn't hear that at all. Um, what I heard was an acknowledgement that this is a trying time um, and that we'll have to sort of sit and wait and see how these things play out. But ultimately, the bedrock of the U.S. as a relationship remains strong. Um, and that's something I wrote about, and it frankly surprised me to a certain degree, but it really shouldn't have because it really is so deeply embedded um, in the, the histories of both peoples that it seems only natural that the U.S. and Israel would continue to have a strong alliance no matter what their differences might be at any given point in time. You know, I read that column. I thought it was, it, I thought it was terrific. And also, I was surprised as well by your experience because there was something incongruent between your experience talking with lawmakers on the Hill and the way so much of Western media seems to have been covering um, the, the the reforms and the protests and the backlash to them. So, uh, so I want to get into that. And I think uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with um, Israeli politics, there's a few things you need to understand. Uh, about the way Israel's political system works. Obviously, you can correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but there's no constitution. Uh, you have a, a collection of laws. Um, uh, Israel does not have three branches of government. There are really effectively two, the Knesset, which is the parliament and the Supreme Court. Uh, and then third, no political party really ever gets a majority of votes. So in order for a government to be formed after each election, you have to join a governing coalition that represents a majority. And there are currently... Uh, now, I think a dozen or so political parties that have seats in the Knesset. And um, uh, up until recently, that need to build a coalition in order to form a government meant that Israel had a relatively fluid political dynamic. And uh, one of the things more recently that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was able to do over the last few years that has completely changed that dynamic was to get the center-right parties to all agree not to join a coalition led by a centrist or a center-left faction, which effectively has prevented a government uh, from forming until they, uh, until they do that. Um, so you've had, I think, four or five elections over the past three or four years. Um, and uh, I want to make sure that I've got all of that right before we continue. Does that sound right to you? So mostly, <laughs> okay. uh, it, it, it is it is pretty complicated. So let's go let's go um, step by step. So it's true that Israel does not have a written constitution. Um, when the country was formed in 1948, they set a deadline, I think, of a year and said, by the end of the year, we're planning on having a constitution. It's been 75 years. There's no constitution, so we're still working on it. Um, there are, however, a series of what are called basic laws, which are um, sort of fundamental laws that um, have have constitutional weight, meaning they're used by the Supreme Court to um, to to inform their rulings, to determine the constitutionality, quote unquote, of uh, various laws advanced by the Knesset, by Israel's parliament. Um, so while it's true that they're not codified in the form of a, a written document, a constitution, there are laws that do have 
constitutional weight um, as we would sort of be familiar with it from from other uh, Western democracies. Um, Israel does not have uh, three branches of government. It actually technically has four. Um, because not only does it have the, the legislature in the form of the Knesset and the, the executive in the form of the government, um, and of course the judiciary in, in the form of the Supreme Court and the judicial system, it actually also has the presidency. Um, the presidency is sort of a, a supra uh, branch of government, not really for sort of fitting into any of the other three. Um, and the president um, plays a role that is largely ceremonial, but not exclusively ceremonial. Um, and uh, the current president, Isaac Herzog, um, has played an interesting role in the debate that we will be discussing today um, as sort of a convener of a national conversation on how best to move forward and reach a consensus on uh, the government's proposed judicial reform. Um, now, it is true, as you said, that uh, no Israeli political party has ever won an outright majority, meaning 61 seats out of 120 uh, in the Knesset, in Israel's parliament. Um, however, there was an attempt, uh, the previous government actually, um, was the broadest attempt to sort of build a national consensus government where you had parties there that ranged from a sort of center-right party led by um, Naftali Bennett, who was uh, prime minister for a period, um, all the way over to actually an Islamist party, the first time that an Arab-majority party uh, led by a member of Knesset named Mansour Abbas, who's actually an Islamist, uh, quite a, uh, um, a devout uh, Muslim, uh, was ever a part of an Israeli governing coalition. Um, it did not last very long. And in fact, it fell apart under the weight of its own contradictions, um, and, which, which brought about the last uh, series, the last election in late last year. Um, and brought about the current coalition led by Benjamin Netanyahu. So that's where we're currently at, um, and I think we can take the conversation from there. That brings us to this, uh, the political development that's making so much news lately, which is uh, that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, push for structural reform, um, including a new law restricting uh, the reasonableness standard, and that's in quotes here, that the Supreme Court used in Israel. So can you explain what the role of the Supreme Court has been in Israel. You mentioned the the laws that have a sort of uh, constitutional weight. What is What does this law mean? How was it passed? Why is there such a fierce opposition to it? And, and uh, why are we seeing protests now across the country? So the Supreme Court in Israel is extraordinarily powerful. Um, it's viewed as being one of the most powerful and one of the most activist judiciaries in the world. Um, which plays an important role in Israeli society by offering a check on government decisions and on decisions made by parliament, made by the Knesset. Um, but there's, there are many, uh, particularly on the right, who feel that the court has been too powerful, too activist, um, and too, dominate, too much dominated by um, a, a certain secular uh, European elite that they view as unrepresentative of the Israeli body politic. Um, and it is certainly true that the majority of justices on Israel's Supreme Court do come from a European background. They tend to be secular. Uh, they tend to be left-leaning. And so uh, many who do not fit into those categories have felt for quite a long time that they're getting short shrift um, from the Supreme Court. And they, they point to certain instances, including, um, as you mentioned earlier, the disengagement from Gaza, uh, where the residents of the communities in Gaza felt that the Supreme Court was insufficiently um, attuned to their concerns, wasn't sufficiently protective of their rights at that time. 
um, which many would, uh, would say is an, a misreading of, of the situation, but um, that is how they feel. And now many of those same people are in government. Um, because if you look at the prime minister's governing coalition, it is dominated by right-wing and religious parties. Um, and it, many of the people who are most prominently represented amongst the activists who were in opposition to the disengagement at that time are now members of the governing coalition. There are other instances as well um, in which uh, there was this perception that the court was being uh, sort of hijacked by this quote-unquote left-wing secular agenda. Um, and that's brought about the sense of resentment um, that many uh, Israelis on the right, those who are religious, um, those who don't come from the sort of um, uh, rarefied schools of thought that have dominated the court, um, have felt that they have been disenfranchised for a very long time. Um, and so there have been certain members of parliament who for quite a long time have been pushing the idea of judicial reform. Um, most prominent amongst them is Yariv Levine. Yariv Levine is a prominent member of Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party, who is now, would you believe it or not, Israel's justice minister. And uh, upon entering his role um, at the end of 2022, he announced that he would be launching this effort to dramatically reform the balance of powers between Israel's judiciary and legislature. Um, and in fact, he has done exactly that. Um, he unveiled a package of legislative initiatives that range from, as you said earlier, um, eliminating what has been called the reasonableness standard, uh, which is a, a mechanism that the court has used to determine whether a decision made by the government uh, would meet the, the qualifications of a reasonable decision or something rendered by a, a reasonable actor, um, to dramatically changing the makeup of the Judicial Selection Committee, which determines um, all of the judges in Israel from the Supreme Court on down. Um, and perhaps one of the most dramatic elements of this package of legislative initiatives um, is an override clause that would enable uh, the, the Knesset to override, to overrule essentially the Supreme Court by a very slim majority of one, which would essentially mean that the Supreme Court was, was toothless and had no uh, meaningful power anymore. Um, so that was unveiled at the very beginning of uh, this, this government's days in power. Um, and perhaps predictably, it unleashed a wave of opposition, um, particularly on the left, but not exclusively. There are quite a few members of the right, um, including members of the prime minister's own party who have signaled their opposition to this legislation, certainly as it's being advanced. Um, and it's important to note that there's broad agreement, including on the part of um, uh, the leaders of the opposition, Yair Lapid, who is the actual leader of the opposition, Benny Gantz, who um, is a former coalition partner of the prime ministers uh, and now heads a party called National Unity, that there is a need for some reform, that there is a need for some realignment of the balance between the judiciary and the legislature in Israel. But they feel quite strongly that the way that this is being advanced has been unduly aggressive um, and, and way too far reaching. They simply can't go along with the way that it's being done. So that's that's sort of where, where we are now and how we've gotten to where we've gotten today. Okay, so this law has now passed and it is in effect, or where do we stand? Is the, is the Supreme Court as we sit today effectively toothless? No, it is not. So the, the, the very first piece of legislation was um, this relatively minor um, item having to do with the reasonableness clause that did pass several weeks ago accompanied by massive street protests. The, the opposition walked out of the chamber as the vote was taking place. Um, 
And uh, immediately after its passage, a series of petitions were submitted to the Supreme Court uh, questioning the viability or the constitutionality of that law. Uh, Now, the court is set to hear those petitions in several weeks' time, and we don't know exactly what will happen then. If the court rules that this that this law or this um, this dissolution of the reasonableness clause was unconstitutional, we may find ourselves in a bit of a constitutional crisis because you'll have the court essentially rendering a decision on its own powers against the wishes of the parliament, um, and we don't know exactly what would happen at that time. I think many people hope that we're not going to get there, um, but there's a chance that we might. Um, the court actually has several different options. It could punt. It could decide that it's not going to render a decision for several months. It may try to reach some kind of a compromise. But if it does strike down this law, we could find ourselves in uncharted territory. Um, At the moment, the Knesset is in its summer recess until after the Jewish holidays, which gives us a little bit of breathing room for about a month and a half longer. Um, But the prime minister has said that once the Knesset resumes its activity, um, he's prepared to move forward with the legislative process, which would bring this whole suite of other legislative initiatives back to the table. Um, I should note that there have been indications in recent weeks that certain members of the prime minister's own party and other coalition partners will not actually accept the passage of the legislation as it had originally been proposed, that they would only agree to move forward if the legislation were significantly uh, moderated or if it were done by consensus or agreement with the opposition. Um, Now, they had said that before the initial vote a few weeks ago, and ultimately every single member of the coalition, every one of the 64 members of the coalition parties did vote in favor. Um, But what I've heard from from people in the political system is that they've basically been holding their fire for a more significant moment, which is what would happen should those legislative initiatives indeed be reintroduced after the recess. I think Americans are no um, no strangers to imagining a constitutional crisis in our own country, and uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, um, <laughs> I I think there's no Western democracy on the globe right now that is not experiencing uh, really difficult times. Uh, when the passage of the bill happened, you called it a dark day in this nation's history, and so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what it symbolizes. For Israel and 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 whether you're optimistic or or pessimistic about the path forward from here, I think it was a dark day not because of the content of the legislation itself, which again was comparatively minor, um, and uh, there was general agreement even on the part of the opposition that it it needed to be adjusted in some way. The reasonable standard, as it was being applied by the court, was in fact unreasonable. Um, I think what what made it such a dark day was that it appeared as though the coalition was was just driving roughshod over the the feelings and concerns and really fears of roughly half of Israel's population. Um, And I think it was indicative to me of this tremendously troubling disconnect, this, this really deep divide between different parts of Israeli society that came to bear at that moment. Um, it was really a, a painful day, I think, for many, many Israelis who were um, either in the streets themselves or seeing their friends and families sort of pitted against one another, feeling so strongly about these changes to or potential changes to the government. Um, and that's why I called it a dark day and, and, and why I, I think and I think many others will agree that those scenes can't return, um, which is why we must reach some kind of a compromise. Um, I actually am optimistic that we will reach a compromise. 
whether that compromise is forced from within, um, that is by members of the coalition or of the prime minister's own party uh, who say that we will not permit this to move forward unless you're able to reach agreement with the opposition or moderate the uh, the legislation to such a point where it could be accepted by a broader swath of the public, or indeed by some kind of negotiated process, uh, either under the auspices of Israel's president um, or in some other context where you could be able to uh, come to some kind of an agreement of what the future balance of powers might look like. Um, all the indications I have uh, are that the, the legislation, as it was introduced in its most sweeping and aggressive form at the beginning of the year, is not what we are going to see at the end of this process. Um, and I say that on the basis of conversations with uh, leaders on, on, in both the coalition and the opposition. Um, so how that comes about and, and what that looks like, I think, remains to be seen. But I am optimistic that we will emerge from this with some kind of consensus, certainly a more moderate version of legislation than what we had seen at the very beginning of this process. Okay, that's really helpful. So a lot of people here in the U.S. have, um, and a lot of uh, media outlets have invoked Donald Trump's anti-democratic conduct, uh, his attempts to consolidate power and to delegitimize election results, um, some of which he stands indicted for in various jurisdictions right now. But I think an important thing to understand is uh, that these reforms that Netanyahu is pressing for um, th this government is not doing anything unconstitutional because there is no constitution, as we said. Technically, all of this is within bounds legally. Um, and so uh, you might not know that if you were reading some of the U.S. reaction to, uh, to what's happening there. And um, I think that's really important for people to understand. And as I was looking into this issue, I was, I was listening to what Yuval Harari had to say about it. And he's... Uh, a, a very vocal um, uh, critic of Netanyahu's. And one really important question he brought up was, what mechanism limits the government, the, the government's power? And, um, and I wonder what you think about that question and whether or not, uh, is the Supreme Court ultimately the only check on the government's power? And, and, and how should we be thinking about that? Well, look, if, if you look at the role that the Supreme Court has played over the years, um, it has been one of uh, protection for uh, individual rights, civil rights, communal rights. Uh, many of the advances made um, for women's equality, for LGBTQ equality in Israel have been afforded through the Supreme Court rather through the legislature. And so there are concerns on the part of many, particularly in those groups, but more broadly within Israeli society, that uh, those advances could be scaled back if the, the Supreme Court no longer has the power to serve as a check on, uh, on government decisions or on decisions made by the legislature, by the Knesset. Um, so look, it, it's, it's, it is a, a complex situation. Um, and, and I think saying that um, you know, one side is, is wholly in the right and the other is wholly in the wrong uh, is not generally a healthy way to go about it, particularly because in this exact situation, we actually do have broad agreement within a large segment of Israeli society that the balance of powers does need to be shifted, that the, that the Supreme Court is unduly powerful, um, that it has taken unto itself certain powers that don't exist in law, um, that it enables itself to render judgment on, uh, on cases that really have, have, no, have no business being before the Supreme Court. And this has been a critique that has 
existed from both right and left for many, many years. Um, and you know, the, the, the former prime minister, the current leader of the opposition, Yair Lapid, has gone on the record and said, you know, I would, I would encourage us to consider the following steps. And those steps are actually basically what the prime minister and, and his coalition are pushing forward now, just in a much more aggressive way. So that's why I feel fairly confident that we can reach a consensus, we can reach an agreement if there is the political will to do so. Uh, now, I would say each each side is engaging in its own uh, political calculus as to what is most advantageous at this moment. And there may be those on either side who don't feel that it's actually in their interest, in their electoral interest, their political interest to reach a consensus that actually it's um, it's much more advantageous to them to be uh, more aggressive or to present more of, a, of an aggressive front. Um, but I think that there is a general will within Israeli society to put this really painful moment behind us. Uh, and move forward with some kind of a consensus reached on the the vast majority of issues on the table. Okay. Okay. So if the this is the this is the big question I I wanted to get to, and maybe you you um, can help our listeners think through this because um, I imagine they have you know like me have read a lot of the mainstream coverage in the U.S. and it's been uh, it's been very alarming to them. And if the cornerstone of the U.S. Israel relationship is its is Israel's status as our only democratic ally in the Middle East, or or one of the most important features. How should the United States? How should Americans be thinking about the health of democracy in and among our allies, and especially Israel? And how would you um, how would you counsel Americans to to think about this relationship, especially during this uh, worrying time? Look, I, I think the administration um, has done pretty much what you would expect it to do in this situation, which is um, express cautious concern, um, but also confidence that Israeli democracy will win out uh, in the end and that the Israeli people will be able to advance uh, through their democratic system of government and reach some kind of agreement. Um, I think anything beyond that would be interpreted in Israel as undue intervention in the democratic process that would certainly not be welcome um, by the proponents of the legislation, but also might uh, be looked at with some degree of, um, uh, of confusion by those who are in opposition to, to it. Um, at the end of the day, Israel will continue to be a democracy. Uh, whether or not this legislation is passed in its more moderate form, um, ultimately, the underpinnings of the relationship remain robust. Um, Israel does have a free press, uh, freedom of, of assembly. Uh, all, all the freedoms that we're used to as Americans and, and Israelis are, are shared by both peoples. And I think that ultimately, those things will remain no matter what. Now, whether I could say that would be the case if the legislation advanced in its most aggressive form uh, is something that, that remains kind of unclear. But being that I don't actually believe that that's going to happen, I don't think any serious commentators do, I think we can rest assured that the democratic underpinnings of the U.S.'s relationship will remain strong for many years to come. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Netanyahu and and Trump, as many people seem to compare them often. Donald Trump is facing four different criminal indictments now for a host of activities. And in Israel, Netanyahu's uh, still facing corruption charges, I believe. Can you um, talk about how you see the legal troubles facing political leaders shaping the relationship between the two countries? And it would be helpful if we 
had a little bit of a primer on uh, what's happening with Netanyahu and the the um, the current investigation into corruption. So Netanyahu has been the subject of, of several criminal investigations uh, into allegations of, as you said, corruption, bribery, um, uh, utilizing undue influence in the media by means of uh, some kind of bartering or, or arrangements made with, with the, the heads of certain media outlets. Um, and there are those who've speculated that the reason he is advancing this legislation is in order to give him and the coalition he controls the ability to um, override any decisions made by the court on his cases. I think that that's a pretty narrow-minded way of looking at it, and I I don't think that that is actually the case. Um, I think the prime minister has other reasons to be supportive of this legislation, but to be perfectly honest, um, the legislation isn't coming from him. Um, This legislation is coming from certain members of his coalition, uh, including Yariv Levine, the justice minister I mentioned earlier, and others, um, for whom this is an ideological battle that they feel that they absolutely must fight. Um, They're convinced, by the way, that this will make Israel more democratic, not less. Um, That uh, the current situation is manifestly undemocratic, where the will of the people is being ignored by this small cadre of secular leftists in the Supreme Court who are able to override uh, what the, the, the people have said they want in the form of the legislature. Um, now, whether the prime minister feels quite as strongly as they do, I think is, is questionable. And I would actually argue that he doesn't. Um, and I think that there was a, a major miscalculation made um, in the way that this legislation was advanced, the way it was introduced, the way it's been pushed through. Um, and that many leaders of the prime minister's own party and of his coalition partners recognize that, recognize that, that certain huge mistakes were made along the way. And to be perfectly honest, if I were the prime minister, I don't know that I would want this as, you know, sort of the, the centerpiece of my term. You know, you have to remember that he, he entered his term as prime minister with two main agenda items. The first being preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear armed power. And the second being the promotion of normalization with Saudi Arabia. Both of those goals are are simply not possible while the entire world is focused on this judicial reform that, again, the prime minister, I don't think, really even wants quite as much as his coalition partners do. Um, And so I think to him, this is an unnecessary distraction that he would love to find some excuse to put behind him. The question is, what, what will that excuse be? Will it be, again, some kind of uh, negotiated compromise? Will it be pressure from within the party that will enable him to say, sorry, guys, you know, I wanted to do this, but what can you do? The coalition won't let me. My own party won't let me. We're going to have to leave this for another day. Um, Will it be some kind of development that has has been suggested by Tom Friedman and others with regard to Saudi Arabia that would enable him to uh, ditch his coalition partners, bring in Benny Gantz, uh, again, a member of the opposition who uh, was very supportive uh, of uh, of the prime minister until he wasn't, uh, when he felt that he was being um, uh, shortchanged by him in, in an arrangement that they had several years ago. Um, instead of those coalition partners creating a more moderate government, enabling him to move forward on Saudi Arabia, um, we don't know. Um, but I firmly believe that the prime minister at the moment is really looking for an out. And the question is, what does that out look for look like, and, and how are we able to move forward from that point? Okay, that's that's really helpful insight. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to talk about anti-Semitism here in America. 
Um, and I think we should start with Pramila Jayapal's comments. So in mid-July, Democratic Congresswoman, uh, and she is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, characterized Israel as a racist state. And she was very quickly criticized by politicians from both major parties here. 40 House Democrats signed a statement condemning her. Uh, she issued a statement walking back the comments, and she wrote that while she does not believe Israel as a nation is racist, she does believe Netanyahu and his party have, and I'm quoting, engaged in discriminatory and outright racist policies, and that there are extreme racists driving that policy within the leadership of the current government. Um, and then we'll get to the resolution in a minute and the and the no votes, but what was the re- the, the initial reaction in Israel to Jayapal's comment? Uh, I have to be honest, I don't know that so many Israelis are, are quite so attuned to what uh, a particular member of Congress might say at this or that moment. There are There's broad recognition in Israel that there are members of Congress, um, of whom Jayapal is one, uh, who tend to take a more critical stance on Israel. Others, of course, include Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, um, other members of the so-called co- uh, squad, um, who have been critical of Israel and, and who are sort of bound together by their hostility towards Israel. Um, and so I don't think that that many Israelis took a great deal of notice of those particular remarks. I think it was much more notable to see what happened in America um, and, and how uh, Americans and how the, the Democratic Party in particular responded uh, to, the, to those remarks as they were made. Yeah, and and on that note, days after her comments, uh, the House of Representatives passed a resolution declaring that Israel, quote, is not a racist or apartheid state. Congress rejects all forms of anti-Semitism and xenophobia, and the United States will always be a staunch partner and supporter of Israel. And it passed 412 to 9, um, with one Democratic uh, abstaining, and the no votes were, um, as you might expect at this point, all members of the Progressive Caucus, uh, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Jamal Bowman, Summer Lee, Ilan Omar, Cori Bush, Andre Carson, Delia Ramirez, and Ayanna Presley. Um, and uh, and Jayapal in the end supported that she resolution. Did. She did indeed. Yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think that's a really good point. The response here was swift and very decisive. And so I wonder if if we could pivot from this moment, um, which was I think really swiftly dealt with within the Democratic Party and and within Congress, to the broader landscape of rising anti-Semitism in America, I, I, I probably around the world, but especially here, and what you see as as the origin of that, or 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 fueling the flames that were already there. Um, just in general, how do you see that picture and and where it's coming from? Look, anti-Semitism is, is a peculiar hatred because unlike other forms of hate and bigotry, it comes from multiple different sources across the political landscape. Um, and so why, while we traditionally think of anti-Semitism as coming from the far right, uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and the like, and they are certainly... Um, a prominent source of anti-Semitism today, what we've seen to happen over the past few decades is anti-Semitism is increasingly coming from the far left as well. Um, And we see that represented in a variety of ways. Um, Anti-Zionism, which is the belief that the Jews uniquely out of all nations in the world do not have a right to self-determination, is viewed by many um, as a contemporary form of anti-Semitism. And 
Uh, there are those, including in Congress, who engage in anti-Zionist rhetoric on a regular basis, and that is viewed by many American Jews as delving quite heavily into anti-Semitism. Um, when uh, a member of Congress uh, suggests that uh, the, a Jewish lobby controls uh, the U.S. House of Representatives through their money, as Ilhan Omar has said, um, when members of Congress uh, portray Zionism as racism or portray Israel as uniquely racist, um, that is viewed by many American Jews as tremendously alarming. Um, and if not, if not uh, uh, representing, then certainly feeding the fires of anti-Semitism that I think many believe to be on the rise across America uh, in the aftermath of the Tree of Life shooting back in 2018, um, that that this is a climate that is becoming increasingly inhospitable to Jews and to their right to self-determination as represented in the establishment and existence of the state of Israel. Um, and that's why when there are comments made uh, about the nature of Israel, that Israel is in itself a racist endeavor, not saying uh, as she didn't initially, uh, she clarified it afterwards, she was talking about the government, but the statement wasn't about the government. The statement was about Israel as an entity being a racist endeavor. Um, that is viewed by many American Jews as a blatantly anti-Semitic statement. Um, and by the way, it's important to note that that feeling is shared by many Americans. Um, you know, you mentioned in your intro that I previously worked for the American Jewish Committee, the AJC. Um, and during my time there, uh, which coincided with the, the horrific attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, we conducted the first ever surveys of American Jews and the general public on anti-Semitism in America. We asked about their experiences, their perceptions of anti-Semitism, what they considered to be anti-Semitic. And large majorities of both Jews and non-Jews in the United States said that the statement, Israel has no right to exist, was an anti-Semitic statement. Well over 80% of both Jews and the general public in America said that denying the Jewish people's right to self-determination is anti-Semitic. And so when members of Congress engage in rhetoric that seems to undermine Israel's right to exist or seems to undermine the Jewish people's right to self-determination, they have to understand that that is interpreted, again, by the majority of both Jews and non-Jews in America as anti-Semitism. And that's, I think, what we saw uh, play out in that, uh, in that episode and why there was such an overwhelming uh, wave of support for Israel and for the Jewish people's right to self-determination on the part of both the Democratic and Republican parties, including, as you mentioned, that member of Congress herself, after those unfortunate remarks. Yeah. Yeah. On on this point, I think it might be helpful if you could speak to the distance between that American sentiment you you noted and uh, groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, and UN experts who have all said Israeli Israel is practicing apartheid in the occupied Palestinian territory. Can you can you explain the distance between where America is at and where these these NGOs seem to seem to see uh, Israel as. Yeah, look, I think that there's um, uh, a disconnect between how we perceive these organizations and, and how they actually are. Um, if you look at both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, um, they have undergone significant evolutions over the course of their existence. Uh, the, one of the initial founders of Amnesty International was himself uh, an open and avid Zionist. Uh, initially, there was um, uh, quite a lot of support for the state of Israel. Um, and it got to the point where over the course of the years, um, fewer and fewer members of the initial leadership of Amnesty felt that they had a home in the organization because it had adopted such a hostile 
uh, stance towards Israel. The same is true of Human Rights Watch. The founder of Human Rights Watch himself published an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago um, saying that the organization has gone well past uh, its, its initial roots um, in its condemnation of Israel to the point where he felt that he could no longer associate himself with the organization as it has become. Now, that's challenged by the fact that we view, we who uh, support human rights around the world, view these as authoritative voices. And in fact, they are authoritative voices on uh, many instances of, of uh, human rights abuses um, and other atrocities taking place around the world. But they seem to have a curious blind spot when it comes to Israel. Israel is the subject of a disproportionate amount of their attention, of their condemnation, of their critiques. Um, and one has to wonder why. Uh, where does that come from? Is Israel that bad? Is Israel so much worse than, you know, give us the laundry list, China, Russia, uh, uh, Sudan, uh, you know, uh, Pakistan, like all these other places where gross human rights uh, abuses take place. Is Israel really that much worse than them? Um, I think we would all have to question whether that's the case. And then we also have to question why is it then that these organizations and the United Nations, which you mentioned earlier, which we can, you know, it's a whole separate subject, but it's related as well place such a disproportionate emphasis on the world's only Jewish state. As we wind down here, and I want to be mindful of the time, um, on, the, on the subject of anti-Semitism, especially in America, how would you like to see Americans um, reverse this trend? And what do you think it would take? What, what would you like to see um, more of? What do, you think, what do you think needs to happen? Um, in order to, to, to stamp some of that out. And, um, and then moving forward, you know, we're having these fights to preserve democracy and, and to combat extreme partisanship in countries across the globe. Um, and as the U.S. and Israel both take on these fights on the home front, how do you see this relationship growing? Well, look, to your, to your first question, I think it's really easy for uh, members of either party to point fingers at the other. Right, it's super easy for Republicans to point to anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party, and for Democrats to point to anti-Semitism in the Republican Party. It's much harder for the leaders of these parties and for their memberships to look within and see whether there might be a problem in their own parties and whether there might be an issue that needs to be dealt with in a very deep and painful way from within. Um, I think that that came that has come to the fore in, in several different instances. Um, there was an episode several years ago uh, in the aftermath of those remarks by Ilhan Omar that I referenced earlier, um, in which there was an attempt to pass a, 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 a resolution condemning uh, anti-Semitism that was ended up being so watered down that Ilhan Omar herself voted in favor of it, despite the fact that the resolution was initially meant to target her. And you have to ask why that is. Why is it that the Democratic leadership at the time felt that it couldn't take a stronger stance against anti-Semitism when it was a member of the Democratic caucus who was engaging in that anti-Semitism? And I think that that's a conversation that both parties need to have. There are plenty of, uh, of members, of extreme members on both sides of the aisle who engage in rhetoric that is broadly recognized as anti-Semitism, both on the right and on the left. And those members often get a pass from the party leadership because uh, party solidarity and a, a sense of unity in the face of the opposition and so on and so forth are viewed as being more important uh, than rooting out the problem as it manifests. So I think that that, to my mind, is the most important thing 
that both Democrats and Republicans need to do to look within to see how uh, anti-Semitism and other forms of hatred manifest within their own parties and how it has to be uh, rooted out from from within. Um, to your second question about how the U.S. and Israel ought to move forward, I think you know you referenced this earlier. Both countries are grappling with uh, different aspects of their democracy, different uh, ideas of what democracy ought to look like, and I think we. Uh, who believe in liberal democratic values would like to see those values win out in the end, I believe that they will. Um, and I think that that a partnership between the, the, the advocates of those values, those who share them and who, who promote them, um, is the best chance we all have to ensure that our countries remain robustly democratic, that the rule of law remains paramount, um, and that the values that underpin that relationship remain strong for many years to come. Avi Mayer, before I let you go, um, thank you for being here. Where can everybody find you on the internet and follow your work? Uh, well, first of all, you must go to jpost.com. As you said, Israel's leading English language news outlet. Um, you can find all of my writing there. I write a weekly column. Um, I'm also active, though not quite as much as I had been in the past, on the platform formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> um, and, uh, and feel free to shoot me a message. I'd be happy to engage with, with anyone and everyone on these issues and any others. Yeah, I would recommend your uh, recent piece called Bring Sundays to Israel. I thought that was uh, really interesting. And I think there are, um, there are things uh, in it for an American audience, I for sure. I appreciate that. Thank you, Ron. Yeah. Uh, all right. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Avi. Thanks, Ron. Have a great one. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.